Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology, brought to you this week in partnership with our sponsor, Viaset. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, Senior Editor Naval, and in this episode we discuss the global market for attack submarines, including key programmes and challenges ahead. And in an interview with the Head of Radar Division at the US Navy's Research Laboratory, we learn about radar innovation and applications. But before we explore these topics, let's take a look at this week's headlines. In Spain, Indra has been working with the Spanish Navy to develop a technology demonstrator based on unsupervised AI. In the Supreme project, a demonstration AI engine was designed to predict malfunctions and improve the maintenance and availability of Alvaro de Bazan-class frigates and Meteoro-class OPVs. Once the development of the Supreme project is completed, the Spanish Navy may be able to plan its missions with greater accuracy, delivering a major operational advantage. And a sense of déjà vu reigns in Croatia, where familiar names will compete in a resurrected tender to replace the Air Force's fleet of MiG-21s. Offers came from France, Israel, Sweden and the US. The latter two are proposing new build solutions, respectively the Gripen CD and F-16 Block 70. In contrast, France with Rafale and Israel with the F-16 CD Barak 2020 are offering second-hand aircraft. Questions still hover over project funding. The current poor shape of the Croatian economy could be a serious snag for the selection of relative expensive new-build fighters. To the United States now, where Secretary of Defence Mark Esper has urged higher spending on shipbuilding to support what he described as a game-changer study for fleet design to deliver a US Navy of more than 355 ships. However, he failed to commit to a precise spending level for shipbuilding. Meanwhile, a Congressional Research Service paper has questioned whether existing U.S. Navy procurement plans are consistent with the 355 ship goal. It also asks whether the U.S. Navy budget submission for fiscal year 2021 strikes the right balance between funding for new ship procurement and funding for other priorities. Interestingly, commitments by the U.S. DoD to naval, Navy executable contracts has increased by $20 billion so far this year compared to 2019, with $53 billion assigned to competitive programs rather than sole source awards. Let's now bring in the team to discuss more defence developments across air and land. So it's hello to air editor Tim Martin and land reporter Flava Kamagosprera. Hello, welcome both. Hi, Rich. Hello. Tim, over to you first. Uh, You've been working on a story this week uh, regarding a T-55 engine deal to support a rotary offer to Germany. Tell us more. That's right, yeah. So all things uh, engines on the R side uh, this week. So Boeing, Honeywell and Rolls-Royce have reached an agreement for T-55 engine in-service support. And that's part of a wider CH-47F Chinook uh, heavy lift helicopter offered to Germany or the the long-running tender that Germany has had um, to replace uh, the legacy CH-53. It's interesting, not only, I suppose, from the engine side and the maintenance side, uh, but also because program-wise is one of the most lucrative uh, heavy lift uh, programs in Europe, uh, Defence Insight, I think, put a program value of around 6.4 billion. So, um, yeah, big, big money um, for, for this one. So, I mean, the teaming up for in-service support, so there's a sustainment criteria, it sounds like, that Berlin has, has laid out for the program, presumably because it doesn't want to keep sending bits and bobs overseas. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so the uh, contribution for domestic industry is is absolutely critical um, for Germany. And uh, previously, we've seen um, Sikorsky, uh, who's competing with the uh, the incoming US Marine Corps heavy lift, the, the new CH-53K King Stallion, uh, and Boeing, um, both have made announcements about a number of supply chain partners that they have, uh, all those being based in Germany. Um, so it's obviously an important uh, consideration. Just me there specifically about uh, the maintenance um, support and what the requirement is. Well, there is a requirement to show evidence that the competing manufacturers are able to, in a sustainable way, have maintenance from the two air bases that the CH-53 fleet are based at the moment. So that's Holsdorf Air Base and Lopheim Air Base, um, where those where that fleet operates from. So yeah, this is Boeing saying in effect that yes, we're absolutely uh, certain we're able to meet that requirement. And the way we'll be able to do that is have uh, Rolls-Royce Deutschland and uh, and Honeywell uh, work on on our behalf and make sure that uh, any sustainability issues and maintenance uh, issues can be worked through um, from, from Germany as opposed to elsewhere. So does this does this I guess includes uh, a wider or a wide spectrum of German industry? Um, to, to, what what efforts has Boeing and Sikorsky as well? That's the rival bit, isn't it? What efforts have they gone to 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 create this this network? Yeah, I mean both fairly ex- have gone to kind of quite extensive uh, efforts to to make sure that they can certainly the sustainable sustainment uh, and support requirements are being met so I mean Boeing just take for example they include uh, aircraft uh, Philip CAE electronic dial defense Liberer space riser simulation and training and uh, Rockwell Collins and of course as I say on the the engine front then they're uh, adding uh, Honeywell and Rolls-Royce so I mean that's quite a quite a formidable team that they've managed to gather and similarly um, Sikorsky have done the same thing so uh, all based around the fact that uh, as I say Germany really want domestic uh, contribution to be critical and of course you know the the aircrafts themselves whoever gets the contract uh, in the case of Boeing they'll produce it from uh, Pennsylvania where the where the in production the 50 uh, the 47F uh, is produced and then uh, Sikorsky from uh, West Palm Beach in Florida, where the 53K is is going to be produced. As I say, the the Marine Corps have our the program of record is for 200 aircraft. Um, so yeah, that's really where where things stand. It's been a long running program for, for Germany, but we're we're edging very very close to to seeing uh, who wins out after four or five uh, years of the, the tender being in progress. You mentioned it's a long running program. It's obviously quite a quite a lucrative one. What's what's the status of it? Is it broadly on time and schedule, on budget, over budget? Yeah, so Boeing um, say that they are still in negotiations uh, with kind of some of the, well, not minor inquiries, but the proposals already in the RFP uh, have already been uh, sent in from Boeing and Sikorsky, but the best and final offer is expected sometime before the end of the year. And then next year, the first three months of 2021, there's a, an announcement expected from the German MOD uh, to confirm uh, who the winner is. And beyond that, then deliveries, I think, are somewhere in around uh, 2025 um, to begin that. I mean, I think it's it's quite interesting from the manufacturer's 
point of view, both will look upon foreign contracts as, as absolutely critical, but perhaps a Boeing more so than Sikorsky because the there is the ramp down of the CH-47F, uh, the baseline variant, the, the production ramp down, it's, it's slowing um, considerably. And uh, in effect, they want to have foreign contracts um, to bolster the production line in, in Pennsylvania um, because the, the Block 2, the CHF um, Block 2, uh, there's only a, a, a small handful of contracts that they've so far got for the uh, Special Forces variant. Um, so in order to kind of ease that transition from block one to, to block two, yeah, something like this, where there's 44 to, to 60 uh, airframes on offer uh, would be absolutely central. Um, of course, you know, I shouldn't say that it's, it's not as important as Korsky. Of course it is, but the, the 53K, there's 200 of them already guaranteed from the Marine Corps. So they're in a very healthy position. I suppose that the thing that would help is you talk about economies of scale, for example, the as it's a test and development uh, helicopter at the moment, it it is over budgeted, and, and that's been a, a point of issue um, with the, the US uh, DOD. Of course, to lighten that load uh, as well, then to bring costs down on the development side, it would be nice, you know, to have to, to add uh, a contract of sixty aircraft, that two hundred that are already committed. So. Of course, from a, a technology point of view, I suppose it's interesting as well. The, the older R-frame is the Chinook. And, well, I suppose they're both legacy R-frames, but I, I think Sikorsky can rightly say that the, the more capable and the, the more costly is the, the, the King Stallion. So, yeah, that's really the, the option that, that Germany has. Whether you could lean on, you know, wh- which one would be more likely, well, I suppose you might have to suggest that it's the Chinook more more or less because Germany has traditionally been more risk averse in terms of what they procure, um, and you think of something like the Eurofighter where they 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 didn't really want to overcommit in terms of high end capabilities, whereas and the UK for example did, um, and, and yeah, I'm not <laughs> picking apart just that uh, you know that program itself, but. I think you could also make the case on, on other programs that uh, Germany haven't decided to, you know, go with the the the, the high end uh, capabilities or you know the the uh, the most expensive uh, option. Time will tell, Tim. Time will tell. Thanks for that. All Absolutely. Good. Uh, Flavia, news from you this week on South American procurements. We have Argentina and Uruguay looking to modernize their militaries with some freed up funding. So tell us more. Yeah, they have created funds to upgrade their armed forces, to procure new equipment. Uh, The Argentinian state approved the creation of the National Defense Fund. It's called Fondef in Spanish. Uh, with more than $400 million to equip the tree service. Fondef will account 0.35% of the total expected income in the, the government budget for this year. Uh, and this amount will increase up to 0.8% in 2023. It will uh, raise pro- progressively during the next years. And um, after 2023, the, the fund will maintain the 0.8% rate. So what are Argentinian priorities? I mean, it desperately needs to modernize most of its military. I know it's doing a little bit on the naval side, but but elsewhere, what's it up to? 
Yeah, to be honest, they need to modernize the the three service. The three brains are are uh, demanding a request for for new new equipment or to upgrade the equipment they already have. Concerning the Argentinian Air Force, the plans comprise to strengthen the programs uh, that are that are conducted by the, the government-owned uh, Fabri Fabrica Argentina de Aviones. It's called FADEA. It includes uh, manufacturing more AEA-63 Pampa 3. That's a, a jet with combat capabilities. Also, they intend to progress in the project of the IA-100 Malvina. It's a, a trainer airplane. Uh, and to upgrade the... IA-58 Pucará to the Pucará Phoenix version for border surveillance and patrol missions. Fondef uh, resources will also be used to procure P3 Orions for the Argentinian Navy. And um, also for the Navy, the Ministry of Defense intends to enhance the fleet with um, new tug vessels and an icebreaker. The icebreaker is That's it's the, the most important requirement for the Navy because uh, today the Argentina Navy is, is operating a single icebreaker, the Ara Almirante Irisar. Uh, it's the, the, this icebreaker is used in, in operations in Antarctica, Antarctica and uh, the country really needs because they have six permanent and seven temporary bases there. Uh, in the case of the Army, The priorities will be the procurement of new troops, transport vehicles, and the modernization of the Argentine medium tanks. And uh, they will be upgraded to the TAN 2C version. I think it's interesting to, to highlight the TAN fleet was designed around 40 years ago, and Argentina started the upgrading process of these platforms in 2010. But it didn't progress like the Argentine uh, Argentinian army expected due to the lack of resources, financial financial resources. Okay, so that's the Argentinian side of things. What about Uruguay? What what priorities has it identified? Yeah, uh, Uruguay is focused on improving the naval capabilities. The Uruguayan Navy is in a critical situation due to the, the age of its, its, its fleet. And uh, the, the Uruguayan Navy is currently operating only one-third of uh, its vessels because two-thirds are stopped uh, or need to... to be modernized, and uh, Uruguay has announced the creation of a fund in a partnership with the National Development Corporation. It's a governmental body that supports the infrastructure development and uh, faci facilitates the execution of funds. Uh, this Uruguayan fund will use um, uh, shipping fees that are already collected by the Navy, And uh, uh, during during a press conference, the Ministry of Defense, Javier Garcia, uh, he claimed that the situation that the Navy is going through is extreme. And he said it puts basic functions of the state of the state at risk. The situation of the the army and the air force, it's not different. 
they are also struggling with their aging fleets. Uh, Uruguayan and Air, Uruguayan Air Force and Army are currently opla- operating platforms that were designed in the 60s and 70s, including the the Air Force uh, is operating only 36% of her craft uh, of their fleet. Thanks, Flavia. You've outlined really well there the, the problems Argentina and Uruguay both have with their militaries, but it looks like at least they're moving slowly in the right direction, fingers crossed. Thanks both. For our listeners, if you'd like to find out more about the stories discussed in this episode, please visit our website, shepherdmedia.com forward slash news. It's also worth mentioning Shepherd is offering a 20% discount for annual subscription to premium news. Head over to shepherdmedia.com forward slash subscribe and insert code PN20 to redeem. Valid until 30th of September 2020. Coming up next, I'm in conversation with Shepard's naval analyst Harriet Haywood for a quick overview of the SSK global market and some of the key programmes therein. Ben Atkinson, product manager. Well, when I retired from the Marine Corps in uh, 2017, I wasn't really ready to separate fully from the, the military in general and the Marine Corps specifically. Uh, so I, I joined Biosat, had a wonderful opportunity to do so. And what's great about it is I still get a chance to interface with the warfighter. I still get a chance to provide them with some some really unique capabilities. And Biosat's been great about that. Uh, from from day one, there's been this amount of trust they put in their employees. And it's been it's been obvious in my, my career path so far. That trust has really enabled me. But also Viasats just, you know, need to innovate and they push it across the business areas. So innovation is something that we, we do on the norm. If you have an idea, the idea seems viable. You can make the uh, business case for it. You get backing from your leadership and it's been, it's been phenomenal to do so. The European and Asia Pacific regions are two of the largest conventional submarine markets in the world with more than a dozen countries actively engaged in submarine procurement and recapitalization programs. Tens of billions of dollars are earmarked for the purchase of dozens of boats over the next decades, making up a substantial portion of the global market. There are, however, challenges to these aspirations, not least of which is the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining me on the Weekly Defence podcast to discuss these regions, their markets and some of the key programmes underway is Harriet Haywood, Naval Analyst at Shepherd Media's Defence Insight Team. Harriet, welcome back. Thanks for having me. A recent industry webinar I attended spoke of 300 conventional submarines in service worldwide, and 60% of these platforms are more than 20 years old, figures I think that speak of potential opportunity. So in a in a global sense, give us an idea as to how large this market really is. Well, we're going to see a large amount of spending on submarines over the next decade. We do have an awful lot of replacement programs out there. But if we look at the major markets, it is dominated entirely by Asia Pacific and uh, a portion of that is Europe. The rest of the world don't particularly have much standing in terms of spending, but it is significant in comparison to a number of other platforms. So to Europe then, how much of a priority is it for its navies to acquire new conventional submarines? And is it being done? do you think, at the expense of surface platforms? Well, Europe actually makes up around 29% of all global SSK spending over the next 10 years or so. It's around 20 billion. um, And a lot of countries are spending a considerable amount to ensure that they still have this subsurface capability. If we look towards Poland, the Netherlands, Romania, they're all in the process of acquiring new submarines. 
while keeping the procurement of surface uh, vessels, say, more confined. I think Norway has taken this one step further and in a bid to procure the four type 212 common um, design submarines from TKMS, um, they are deciding to upgrade their four Freedom uh, Nansen frigates instead, um, rather than replacing these ships. Um, purely so they can carry on the procurement of submarines. But of course, this still leaves a gap. I mean, these are um, these surface vessels are still expected to reach the end of their service lives by 2030. So they'll need replacement, but they are prolonging the, the lives of these ships. Well, the, the decision was also taken by Norway to not replace the uh, the Helga Ingstad, which was obviously lost uh, a year or so back. Uh, so what was a five frigate fleet was, was, was suddenly a four frigate fleet. Do you think that the funds that potentially could have been set aside to reinvest into the surface fleet, as you say, has gone straight into the submarine programme? Indeed, you know, they've admitted that these funds are going towards submarines instead, which is why they've chosen to upgrade these frigates. They're not replacing any of them. They won't even replace the one they've lost. They're just upgrading them to put funds towards the procurement of these four submarines. Yeah, very interesting. So how might the pandemic then force the hand of some countries in having to do an, an either-or calculation rather than being able to opt for both? I think, you know, the long-term cost of SSKs is quite considerable. So when it comes to defence budgets, they are going to need to prioritise what they want. I mean, Poland, they've already announced that naval programmes are going to be affected by the pandemic. Um, we don't know whether this is going to include their, their Swordfish-class frigates or their Orca-class submarine programme. The, I mean, the Swordfish-class was already looking particularly unlikely. They were already um, pushing more towards their, their Orca submarine programme in comparison to, to their surface fleet anyway. But now, given the fact that their, their budget is already going to take a hit, um, the Swordfish-class looks, you know, it's, it might as well write it off now. Whereas the Orca-class programme, if they do it, they might reduce the size of it. Um, that's certainly one program that they would choose above frigates, but whether mm. either of them together go ahead will be interesting to see. And other countries may be in the same predicament. We've got the Netherlands have still got a delayed program. We're still waiting for for answers on this. So whether these fleets are reduced in size, we don't know. It's very early on to tell. Yeah, they're very, very difficult conditions for, for industry and services to operate in. Um, you mentioned Poland looking to upgrade its fleet, possibly with the purchase of, of two Sodomanland uh, submarines from Sweden, obviously, which of course got, has its own Blackinga build. Um, and Romania, of course, wants to rejoin the submarine community after more than two decades away. It's clear that countries in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, the, well, they see the strategic capability that submarines bring, don't they? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a bit more movement in terms of submarine procurement. There's certainly, at the moment, um, there's a number of sort of ageing Russian platforms in the region, and these certainly need replacing. And they're opting for new submarines. There seem to be the same the same type of suppliers coming in with different designs. We've got Saab, obviously, uh, coming in there. We've got TKMS with the common design submarine. That's a strong player in the region. And we've got Naval Group as well. So whether we see um, both Poland and Romania opt for submarines similar to their, their NATO partners and follow the footsteps of the Netherlands, that could be quite likely. But obviously, we've had Russia recently announcing a lot more orders for submarines at Army 2020. So there's going to be a bit more emphasis placed on procurement in the area if they can afford to do so. I guess the big question is, do you think or whether we think Europe is going to be able to maintain its its current fleet of conventional submarines or do you think the figure 
might fall with all the pressures that we've just outlined. I think they've um, outlined plans to attempt to replace the ageing platforms they've got. I think numbers initially were quite ambitious and they weren't just for the replacement programmes. You may have seen one or two more submarines than they currently have in service because we've obviously seen a bit of a drop-off in the past in numbers anyway as these ageing platforms are retired. But these plans, you know, they're all all looking, they're all, they've all been delayed. Mm. Um, some of them are looking more unlikely. So it may be that if they're able to replace just the submarines they've got at the moment, then that's still an ambitious plan. So in the future, I think uh, we may see a, a small drop off in numbers at the moment purely because the market is looking a bit unpredictable. I know the plans were out there to be ambitious and to perhaps perhaps have one or two more, but it's it's going to be quite a struggle to get there. Indeed, it's interesting if you if you look at the numbers. No European navy operates a double digit submarine fleet. It's usually in the the mid to to, to upper single figures. Looking eastwards, and Japan operates what eighteen to twenty SSKs. Australia wants to double its fleet from six to twelve, and 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 China. Well, you know, it, it operates around fifty conventional subs on top of its nuclear fleet. How would you judge? Given all those numbers, how would you judge the Asia-Pacific market for conventional submarines? It's a far more mixed market than Europe. And at the moment, it's an extremely strong market. They do dominate spending. They make up 63% of the, the, the spending we're expected to see over the next 10 years on SSKs alone. I mean, it's around $45 billion, which is considerable in comparison to Europe. But they obviously, they're, they're certainly placing an importance on SSKs. Their own spending it accounts for 32% of all platforms across the next decade. Um, we are seeing the usual countries continue with procurement, South Korea, Japan, the start of Australia's attack class. But obviously, we've got some new countries coming in there as well. We've got Taiwan with a, a very ambitious mm. indigenous submarine program. Whether we see that actually come to life, we don't know yet. Um, but... Having never built a submarine before, this this does look to be quite a, a difficult challenge, and it would sur- surprise us all if they did indeed hit the goal that they've set for themselves. But in terms of spending, it stays very steady across the decade. We're seeing he- quite a large amount of SSKs and a mix of platforms with announced and forecast plans across the decade. Is there a trend in the size of submarines being procured and 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 built? I mean, you look at Australia's attack class. Those are some very large oceanic subs. If you look at the submarines that are being procured across the next decade, they are they seem to be growing in size. Mm. If you look at China alone with just the Yuan class, which of course is being brought by Thailand and Pakistan, they're still relatively large. They're you know around three thousand six hundred tons, just under eighty meters in length, um, and they make up quite a significant portion of those amount of submarines that are going to be entering service. South Korea seem to have changed their plan as well. They've gone from the KSS-2 submarines, which are around 1,800 tonnes in displacement, to the KSS-3, which are considerably bigger. You know, 3,800 tonnes is quite a jump up in size for the most recent submarine procurement. And then you look towards Japan and Australia, and they're over 4,000 tonnes. So you've got a big difference in um, the all types of submarines we're expected to see procured are getting much bigger. The only country which is an exception to that seems to be India. But of course, they've got nuclear-powered submarines, so they, they don't need a large SSK. And they're the only ones that seem to be opting for a smaller platform. Difficult to talk about Asia-Pacific. In fact, impossible to, to talk about the Asia-Pacific without talking specifically about China Obviously, it supplies its own submarines, but it's also getting some good success in the export market. What sort of 
successes do you think it can build on from recent ones in Thailand? Well, of course, we're already seeing them offering the UN-class submarine to Thailand and Pakistan. In terms of cost and the speed of construction, they're getting quite competitive with the rest of the market. They're certainly putting themselves in a in a, a stronger export position, and maybe they could take over from countries that have typically bought the Type 209 in the past. And um, we could see perhaps some move towards a Chinese submarine. Their technology is growing mm. and they are getting quieter. So they might become certainly more of a competitor in the market. And they've pushed that way with surface fleets. And they, they're getting there now with the the, sub, the SSK market as well. But there is, of course, this is quite a theme of indigenous programs in the region at the moment. So it would need to be capable of offering platforms that can be built within that nation, within that country. So we'll wait to see, but they are putting themselves in a much stronger export position. Yeah, you you, you might think that they would rather get successes in emerging markets in countries looking to acquire the new capability of a larger submarine fleet rather than introducing itself into established markets because they're already building their own national programs anyway. Yeah, that's one thing with the Asia-Pacific market. Um, Whether there's much of a gap, it will certainly be with the much smaller countries. And if they're hoping they have a few submarines at not too great a cost, but of course, maybe in the global market, um, China will have a bit more impact than, say, Russian exports now. Very interesting. Thanks, as always, for your time, Herrick. We hope to have you back on soon. Thanks for having me. After much positive feedback from our webinars, we've been working hard on a day of dedicated and exclusive online presentations, and you're invited. Introducing the Defense Markets Summit, the online event of 2020 for defense knowledge. Ticket holders will enjoy analysis of the current state of the global defense markets across land, sea and air, as well as the opportunity to engage in networking and live Q&As throughout. Shepherd's experts are joined by the brightest minds in the industry as we take an in-depth look at the future of defense budgets and procurement priorities over the next 5 to 10 years. Follow the link in the show notes to the dedicated webpage where you will find the full agenda for the day, speaker profiles and ticket information. The Defense Markets Summit goes live on Tuesday, 29th of September, from 11 a.m. UK time. We hope to see you there. The U.S. Naval Research Laboratory has developed new ways to detect subtle vibration changes in moving targets. In effect, this will enable radar operators to hear what a target is doing. For example, whether a parked vehicle has been turned on. Joining us today is Christopher Rodenbeck, electrical engineer in NRL's radar division, to talk about the background to the technology and its potential applications. So, Christopher, what is the background to this uh, project? Is this the first time that it has been possible to hear what a target is doing through this type of technology? Well, researchers out there have already been using radar systems Uh, to do things like sensing respiration or heartbeats, for example. And they've been doing this for some time. There's even been some recent German research in which uh, someone placed a millimeter wave antenna directly on someone's larynx to reproduce their speech. But all those previous investigations where people are trying to reproduce sound with radar, uh, they've required the subject to be conspicuously still or to be surrounded by an environment of radar antennas. 
What we've done is uh, really the first demonstration of radar sound reproduction in which the target is moving and at a standoff from the radar system. And this is something we're able to do even for highly nonlinear target motion. Thank you. Um, and a new, uh, a new type of algorithm is central to this capability. Could you perhaps give us an overview of this algorithm? What does it do and how is it uh, deployed? Sure. That algorithm is really a key advance in our work. We've developed precision motion compensation for millimeter wave radar data. And this allows us to take a monostatic radar and extract and reproduce very small scale vibrations, acoustic vibrations on platforms undergoing large scale motion. So our motion compensation methodology, it uses this hierarchical approach, which we combine direct and indirect estimation for the time dependent variation of target motion parameters. And we do this estimation across coherent samples in radar fast time and slow time. We've demonstrated what we did in this technique uh, using a simple 94 gigahertz radar system. We were able to accurately reproduce the pitch of uh, audio waveforms uh, generated by the speaker in the rear of an accelerating automobile. Uh, Maybe I can go into a little bit of uh, detail on our hierarchical motion compensation approach, Mm. okay? No, absolutely, thank you. So it's fairly novel. Basically, each stage of the motion compensation improves the estimate from the succeeding stage, increasing the quality and overall resilience of the process at Milner Wave. A motion compensation first takes place in range. We call that a range alignment procedure, and that operates in radar fast time. That's time within a pulse. And we begin with a direct estimation for the target motion parameters and follow that with an indirect estimate that refines the same motion parameters using an entropy optimization. It runs quite quickly because the optimization is highly constrained. Then the next stage of motion compensation is a compensation phase in which we operate in radar slow time, so the time from pulse to pulse to pulse. And this works on the data set that's already been range aligned. We start off with an indirect estimate for the simple quadratic phase error. And we make that estimate using, again, entropy optimization. And then finally, we follow this all up with the last step. It's a phase gradient autofocus process that accounts for higher order phase errors. Okay. There are other techniques that could be brought to bear in airborne application, which is what we're uh, targeting in the future. Such techniques uh, in SAR, for example, that have already been specialized for airborne operation weren't required in the data that we've processed but could easily be applied. Um, Maybe I can uh, explain in in very simple terms. You have a radar complex data set, and it's typically plotted in something we call a range Doppler map. And our motion compensation takes a range Doppler map for an accelerating target. It looks like a smear on your computer screen. And we're able with this motion compensation process to adjust that smear so it looks like a stationary target again. And we can then zoom in and look at vibrations selectively across the surface of that target. Maybe one more thing that I'll mention here is we wanted to constrain the computational resources that were required to do this motion compensation. 
And so what we've done is we run the motion compensation over very finite intervals or frames of consideration. And then we concatenate those intervals for subsequent analysis or extended reproduction of sound. Basically in our data so far, we've settled on using one second motion compensation intervals uh, and have gotten good results. And uh, how does it actually translate um, vibrations into sounds? I mean, I'm conscious that you've, you've touched upon this already, but, um, but how does that process actually, actually happen? So if we have a target that's vibrating, the radar return from that target will be modulated in terms of its phase delay so that the resulting complex baseband response in the radar system directly reproduces the target's acoustic signature. This is uh, fundamental to range Doppler processing, but at Miller Wave, the coupling between small-scale vibration and an electromagnetic wave can be stronger. And there's an additional advantage at Miller Wave too, right? We have very wide bandwidth that is easily available with good linearity across large bands. And that wide bandwidth allows us to selectively detect and disambiguate vibrations across the surface of a target. So we can listen to sounds specifically emanating from different range cells along a target. Remember at Miller Wave, the range cell can be narrow. It can be just a, an inch or two wide. So we can look and selectively detect and disambiguate those vibrations across the surface or the length of a moving target. Um, and how powerful is the technology? So what type of range can it operate at and uh, what could be its, uh, its future potential? Well, that's the great news of what we've done here. Uh, the algorithm is not in any way dependent on range. It's really only dependent on the signal-to-noise ratio, which in turn depends on the size of the radar's antenna and uh, the transmit power as well as the noise figure of the receiver. So because we're simply limited by signal to noise ratio, we can design radar systems to look at this type of signature at uh, long distances, which is something that people haven't been looking at in the past. That's it's really interesting, thank you. Um, and so what are the kind of potential uh, applications of the technology, um, either from a naval or military perspective or, uh, or, or just more broadly? Our research is useful and timely. And uh, we can say that for several reasons. First of all, there have been recent advances in Miller Wave solid state technology, which we've achieved under my programs uh, that should make it possible to develop very high resolution, long range identification capabilities in compact form factors that may be suitable for airborne applications. Uh, there's uh, a long-standing application of importance across the services. That's well known, a target identification, integrated visual environments, for example. As you're aware, cameras and infrared sensors can't penetrate through cloud cover or smoke. And with these millenarive radar systems, we can provide identification capabilities in such environments where the other sensors fall short. There are applications of uh, commercial importance uh, to the larger world outside of the military. For example, the development of precision guidance and advanced sensing for uh, ground vehicles and UAVs. Uh, radar electronics uh, and embedded processing in very small form factors 
are required for many of those mobile applications. And my team has consulted with industry on, on these sorts of things, even for non-military public safety applications. So perhaps stretching beyond our target customers in, in the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, there are really broad commercial applications. Uh, if you look at Millerave radar, there are already millions of them at use in automobiles. And they're very simple, low-cost systems that uh, are soon going to have the capability, even some of the advanced uh, radars right now do have capabilities for range Doppler processing, like what I was describing to you before for the vibrometry. So they'll be these Millerave radars in cars will be able to do range Doppler processing. It'll allow these cars to have many of the identification techniques that we've published on already, and they should find widespread use. Uh, one of the techniques that uh, I'm proud of is, uh, for example, we can identify simply if a car is on or off based on the vibration of a tailpipe. We can identify other things of human life safety interest. For example, if a car is shifting from park into drive and about to pull off, we can detect the impulsive vibration of that gear change and, and alert a driver in a car that that car is about to pull off. Other things we can detect are if a car door is opening or closing, and we do that purely based on the uh, range Doppler signature. So it's as if we're taking this millimeter radar and we're able to operate it like an electromagnetic mi microphone at the standoff distance of uh, a radar system. Our work points to a future capability in which radar remote sensing can add sound as another dimension to radar images of a aerial scene so that operators can listen selectively to the sounds of objects. That, that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and just really the last thing was, uh, was what's coming next. Um, is, this, is there kind of a, uh, a view for how this could be translated into real-world applications, um, and uh, how, how will that be achieved? And just more specifically, is there anything um, in particular coming up for the research in the next year or so that you wanted to highlight? Sure. Naval Research Laboratory is developing a, a first-of-its-kind Miller Wave airborne radar system, and we expect delivery of that in Q1 of 2021. And... Uh, future work uh, will greatly extend its capabilities. That, that's fantastic, uh, Christopher. So I think that I've gone through everything I wanted to uh, talk about. And thank you very much for taking the time. Um, unless there was anything else that you wanted to get across that we didn't discuss. I, I have a couple things that I'd like to mention. First of all, I should mention that our work is continuing NRL's long legacy, its long history in the development of Miller-Wave radar including the Warlock system, which was a large 94 gigahertz, very high power radar system developed at Chesapeake Beach, which eventually transitioned to the Hooser Space Observatory at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. Here, our work now is focusing on new advanced signal processing applications of Millerwave radar and the development of radar systems for airborne application. Stepping back for a very broad perspective, uh, where do I see this going, right? There are major reductions that we will see in the near term in the cost, size, weight, and power 
uh, for millirave radars at frequencies uh, above 90 gigahertz. And we can develop this technology to deliver very robust identification capabilities, which ultimately should uh, save lives. And uh, is the whole point really for us at working here at the US Naval Research Laboratory. Absolutely. Well, th thanks again, Christopher, for taking the time. Um, it's been really interesting uh, speaking to you. Great speaking to you too. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice segment. This week sponsored again by our partner Viaset. I'm with Andy Kessler, who's Vice President and Business Area Director of Viaset's Next Generation Tactical Data Link business. Andy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tony. Great to be back. So in the past several weeks, we've talked about the various capability evolutions of Link 16. For example, how Link 16 provides digital situational awareness for dismounted ground forces, how it enables multi-channel, multi-network communications, and even the use of Link 16 in space. Andy, I just wanted to take a, a little bit of a step back and consider the fact that Link 16 was originally designed for that air-to-air -air mission in the 1980s. I mean, have you personally been surprised at how much it's expanded over the years, you know, to fill the, the number of missions and roles that it does currently today? Well, yeah, so I think it's interesting, right? So, you know, we had talked about in the past the technology evolution enabling more and more platforms to participate was perhaps the key enabler. And then, you know, again, as we had previously discussed, the, the network effect is extraordinary in terms of how that affords an opportunity to do other things from a network, as you mentioned, was historically more or less, it was multifunctional in terms of its capabilities, but was largely focused on performance of the air-to-air -air role and, and largely focused on sharing of data from large command and control aircraft uh, with uh, fighters that were being tasked to accomplish missions on behalf of them. But I, I think really what it comes down to is when you have a scenario where you have multi-role nodes, whether they are aircraft, ground vehicles, dismounted JTACs, uh, surface ships, what have you, um, and you have a way for them to communicate in a direct machine-to-machine -machine fashion, in a resilient fashion, and in a secure fashion, it really provides sort of a easy highway of information that uh, transcends different missions and, and transcends different particular information exchanges because it's the underlying infrastructure that's important. So what we're seeing right now really is sort of the typical innovations uh, and uh, I would argue sort of ingenious adaptations of a functioning, successful digital infrastructure. Could you give us any other sort of real world examples of how Link 16 is enabling modern battlefield operations and, you know, perhaps how it's increasing safety and, and just making operations more successful? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think really it comes down to a few discrete areas where Link 16 either enhances the lethality of friendly forces or uh, reduces the risk of fratricide or uh, collateral damage in terms of what friendly forces might do on the battle space. So, 
if, if you think of it in the context of, uh, we talked earlier about all these miniaturized terminals enabling more and more nodes to participate in the network. Uh, now you have a scenario where potentially you might have, as an example, army helicopters, and they might be proceeding on a mission to go uh, perform a medical evacuation mission, or uh, they, they may be doing some sort of personal recovery or, or, or whatever their mission might be. And now they actually have digital awareness of fixed wing friendly forces, whether they be U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, coalition type aircraft that are all in that uh, local area in that battle space. And, and they can advertise their position to those uh, aircraft. They can request assistance if needed based upon what's going on with their mission. And also it reduces the risk of fratricide because now those same aircraft see those, uh, in this example, U.S. Army helicopters uh, on their situational awareness and have understanding of the fact that there's friendlies in that location. You can extrapolate that type of interaction, not just the helicopters, uh, but also to ground vehicles, convoys. It applies, obviously, uh, not just to manned assets, but unmanned assets, both in the air and on the ground and the surface. And it applies as well uh, in a scenario where you might have longer range weapons that are uh, now part of the Link 16 network as well. And I guess one of the things that we've discussed over the, the past several weeks is the fact that one of the advantages of Link 16 is that inherent robustness, you know, which lets commanders build up resilience in their tactical networks. I mean, if we, if we look forward to any future conflict against a peer competitor, you know, which, which seems to be what very much the focus of military developments today. I mean, how, how critical is that robustness and that resilience of the network? It's arguably one of the most critical aspects, right? Because if you think about it, you, you know, the almost any particular mission thread is dependent upon successful interactions between multiple numbers of nodes. It, it may be two, it may be thousands, right? And so, you know, in, in terms of planning, the dependency there is the assured connectivity among those multiple nodes, right? And so, you know, one of the advantages also there is, I keep on going back to this, this piece about the network effect, the more nodes uh, that are actually participating in that network increases the overall resiliency of that network in the form of opportunity for closer relays and so forth uh, that actually increase the likelihood of a message that is transmitted from node A being successfully received by nodes B and others uh, in support of their mission requirements in terms of their information exchanges. And so, I, you know, really what it comes down to is the 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 mission is built around a communications infrastructure where they have to depend upon successful communications. And to do that, um, the more nodes that they have participating in that uh, are, are going to be able to increase the likelihood of success. So looking to the future, presumably we are going to see a range of next generation technologies that will further extend Link 16 capabilities to an even greater number of, you know, tactical edge users. I mean, do you guys have a feel for the art of the possible if we were to look out 5, 10, sort of 15 years about maybe how ubiquitous that connectivity will be? 
Well, I think you're already seeing a little bit of a glimpse of that future, Tony, with um, the experiments that are going on now in terms of putting Link-16 nodes into low-Earth orbiting satellites and, and, and other things which potentially are going to uh, basically proliferate the ability of Link-16 to spread across an ever-widening battle space. And, and the problem, maybe one of the biggest things about that is to move from a network which heretofore has been thought of as limited to line of sight and now you open up the aperture and actually create beyond line of sight connectivity for that same type of approach. Great. Andy, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, for the listener, with anybody with the, even a passing interest in military connectivity, um, if you have missed the previous segments, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. We also have our Five Eyes Connectivity podcast, which is available on the website. Series one was, was produced last year, and series two of that will be premiering in October. Again, link, links will be will be posted in the show notes. Andy, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you, Tony. Great to be here. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Viasat. As always, a big thanks for everyone who took the time in being a part of the episode. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed today's show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also start a conversation or give us feedback joining the Global Defence Community Group on LinkedIn, a platform to interact with our team of journalists and analysts and discuss breaking news as it happens. Head over to shepherdmedia.com forward slash global defence community or search global defence community on LinkedIn to join. Until next week, thanks for listening. 